Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, I, I didn't see that coming. Have you ever said that before? Maybe uh, it was the first time uh, you watched an M. Night Shyamalan movie and you were like, I didn't see that coming. He was dead the whole time? Wow. Uh, or maybe, for, for those of you who've been around a little bit longer, before, before the spoiler really got out, the first time you saw Empire Strikes Back and when Darth Vader revealed that he was Luke's father, maybe you're like, I did not see that coming. The baddie and the good guy are related. I've been a Georgia sports fan for a long, long time. Man, I did not see two years ago coming. That the Braves would win the World Series and the Bulldogs would win the national championship in the same year. Did not see that coming. Caught me by surprise. In fact, I love the Braves, but I remember telling Mitchell, man, if the Braves win in the World Series means that the Georgia Bulldogs aren't going to win the national championship, I'm pretty upset right now. You know what I mean? Like, both of these things can't happen at the same time. I got to be honest with you, February 2020... Uh, I did not see a global pandemic shutting down the world and changing all of our lives forever coming. I don't know about you, but I still don't go to the same Starbucks that I used to go to before the pandemic. It's completely changed my daily rhythm. I did not see that coming. Today on Easter, we remember and celebrate Jesus's resurrection. And despite the fact that Jesus told his disciples over and over and over again that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be tried, that he was going to die, and then he was going to rise again, guess what? Easter morning, they were surprised. They didn't see the resurrection of Jesus coming either. In today's text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 We're going to dive into what we see, what we can see here and now, and then what we will see in forever. So if you have a Bible, we're going to pick up in verse 8. This is Paul writing to the church of Corinth. He says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... We prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In this text, he gives us two reasons why it's hard for us to, at times, see the reality of the truth. To understand the fullness of Jesus' resurrection and what, it ha- what sort of implications it has for us. The first reason is this. He says what is temporary can obscure our vision of what is lasting. That it's hard for us to always see what truly lasts. Verse 8, he says, love never ends. 
There are things that last, that abide, that have staying power, things that will be around into eternity. And Paul says one of those things is love, that love never ends. But he points out some things are temporary. Some things don't last forever. And he identifies three in the passage. He says there's prophecies that are going to pass away. Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge, it's going to pass away. That these are all, he says, temporary things. Now let's get some context. If you've been here the past couple weeks, you know this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the church in Corinth. In Corinth, uh, the church has been self-consumed. They've become consumed with who they are. There is an an air of arrogance about this particular church to the point that even going to church has become about them. And so during the worship service, when the church is gathered in Corinth, they're doing all of these things to try to seek attention. And so something, it would work something like this. Guy in the back is like, hold up. It's my turn to prophesy. And elbows him's way to the front of the stage. Now, to prophesy just means to share a word that they believed was from the Lord for the rest of the church. So that's not in and of itself a bad thing. But if you're elbowing past everybody else to make sure you get your time in the spotlight in order to say your word, it's about you. Or somebody says, oh, hey, hold up, everybody, check this out. I can speak in tongues. Now, this idea of speaking in tongues happened in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. We sang about that earlier. God's spirit moved and people were able to speak in languages they didn't know so that other people could understand them and hear the gospel in their own language. But in Corinth, this had become something like a party trick. A look how special I am. Same thing about knowledge. What he means here is a special knowledge. And so well before Tom Cruise was publicly freaking out about Scientology and pursuing deeper, special, revealed knowledge, the folks in Corinth were already doing the same thing. But not to teach other people. Again, remember, this is attention-seeking. They're doing this in order to look better than others. Like they've got it figured out. And so in this chapter, what Paul is really saying is, listen, folks, Choose to love each other instead of trying to one-up each other all the time. Can we take a break from the middle school boy, one-up everybody, boast in what you can do, and just simply love each other well? Why? Well, here in the text, he says, because all of that stuff you're doing for attention doesn't last. It's temporary. It doesn't go on forever. Now, Here at Mercy Hill, we don't have people elbowing their way up onto the stage in order to impress everybody with their ability to speak in tongues, right? Never happened. Nobody here that I know of is like, hey, I got some special knowledge, 1999, I'll download it to you, and you'll know everything you need to know, right? But the truth is we do also allow temporary things to obscure what's lasting. It might be for us about Money, it's not going to last forever. Traditions that will fade with time. Parenting, your responsibility to steward your kids as a parent changes over time. It could be just the next big deal or the next promotion or the next degree, but all of those things, even good things, aren't forever. But he says love lasts. 
then it does go on forever. And so how we love each other is important. Now, right before this passage, Paul gave us a definition of love. So just look back just for a second. Verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, chances are pretty good you've heard this passage before. Perhaps at a wedding. Perhaps it was even read at your own wedding. And you looked at this passage before and you were inspired by this definition of love. Now, last week we switched it up a little bit. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version really quickly. This passage is not simply a description of a concept of love that we should aspire to. But last week what we said is this is a description of a person. And not at a person that's in this room. If we're really honest, we would go, hey, actually, I fall pretty far short of this definition of love. But instead, this is a description of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who perfectly loves like this passage. And so when Paul says in verse 8 that love never ends or that love lasts, he means that the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus endures. It never ends. And that is what we see clearly together today on Easter. As we reflect on Jesus' death and resurrection, it is a reminder to each one of us of the overwhelming love of God. That God sent his son Jesus out of love who lived a perfect life here on earth side by side with people out of love. And that Jesus laid down his life for us on the cross out of love. And that Jesus rose from the dead out of love. While Jesus' death on the cross might have caught his disciples by surprise, Jesus' death on the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. He saw it coming. And in fact, the scripture says that Jesus voluntarily, of his own accord, laid down his life on the cross. And it is that love That sacrificial love of Jesus dying on a cross that is the love that endures. So this Easter Sunday, whether you attend church regularly or not, whether you would even describe yourself as a Christian or not, God's love for people has been mobilized through Jesus the Son, and you can know that God loves because of the cross. And that endures. That's something that is lasting. So then Paul gives us just an illustration to help us understand what he means. Verse 11. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, he says, I gave up childish ways. Listen, a pacifier is not a bad thing. Ask a parent of a screaming baby or ask someone two tables over at the restaurant. It's like, yeah, get that pacifier in that kid's mouth as quickly as you possibly can. A pacifier could be a great thing. But as a child learns, it learns an important lesson. What, how to soothe himself or herself. 
And so this child, she no longer needs a pacifier. On the other hand, a 32-year-old with a pacifier is a problem. Not just because it looks weird or isn't socially acceptable, but because it indicates that he did not learn one of life's necessary lessons. How to soothe yourself without a pacifier. And so then the pacifier is a teaching tool, a temporary necessity so that a child learns how to control and regulate their own emotions. And this is all Paul's saying here is when you become face-to-face with what's lasting, what's temporary, you can leave behind. That in the same way, even good gifts aren't meant to last forever, that they are temporary. And so we must move on or see clearly what in our lives is intended to be temporary and what we should spend our time on is what is lasting. So how do we do that? How do we see what's lasting instead of being consumed by what is temporary? Because the truth is, for most of us, our lives feel very urgent all the time. Even if we don't have a screaming baby, we have something screaming at us all the time. For college students, it's the next paper due or the test. For some of us, it's the next big project at work. It's an issue in our family. It could be an illness. Something is screaming at us. So how do we readjust our minds? Well, we look back. And we look back this weekend and see the cross of Jesus. And we contemplate, we think about what the cross means. And that is that God loves his people. And by looking back on the cross... We set our affections anew on who Jesus is. You know what's amazing? We talked about this a little bit last week. You know what's amazing about your life? The more you consider how well you are loved by Jesus, the more your heart starts to change to love in the same way. If you want to change your affections and your loves or your focus, where it starts is not by looking at yourself. That's what got you in this trouble to begin with. Where it starts is consistently reminding yourself who Jesus is and what he has done. So for us, just like the Corinthians, we can fall in this temptation to allow what's temporary to obscure what's lasting. And we have to fight over and over again to see this lasting, eternal love. But he points out a second thing. He says, here and now can obscure our vision of a certain future, or we don't always see completely. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial passes away. There's some great news in this verse. Paul acknowledges our lack of certainty. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases paraphrases it in this way. We only know a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. Saying here and now, we have a portion of the truth, but we don't have a full picture. That brings some comfort to me. I don't know about you, but I often feel like everybody else is certain. Everybody else has a clear picture. Everybody else knows what's going on. But I'm often left with questions or doubts or confusion. Paul's like, no, no, no. 
We only know part of the whole story. And then he illustrates this in verse 12. For now, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Corinth was famous for the production of these beautiful bronze mirrors. And so Paul, knowing that about their culture, uses it as an illustration. It says, what we have in the here and now is like looking at one of your famous bronze mirrors and seeing a reflection. You don't see the full picture. It's not quite the same as looking at someone, he says, face to face. It's incomplete. It says, for now, or in this current life, we don't have that full picture. There's a lot that we don't understand, that we don't know, that we don't see clearly. And for those of us who struggle with questions and doubts, that's very, very good news. Now, um, I try to look at myself in a mirror as little as possible. It's humiliating, right? You're like, right, we have to look at you every Sunday while you're up there. We get it. We don't do these bronze mirrors like Corinth, but we do have this thing called social media, right? And the picture that somebody shares on Instagram is what? Just a snapshot of a particular time. Guess what? It's not the whole story. The video that somebody shares on their reel or on their story just captures a single moment. Now, there's nothing wrong with a photo. Photos accurately capture the way a person looks at any particular time, in that particular light, doing that particular thing. But none of us would say that a photo gives us the entire or full picture of who someone is. We don't know all the work that it took to get into that perfect family vacation photo that we are so envious of. We don't see how the parents had to break up a fight in the back seat just based on the photo that we're all envious of. Drawing the infamous seatbelt line. Do not cross the seatbelt. Or the ridiculous thing that as parents we've all said that we said we would never say. Stop touching each other because I said so, right? We don't see their credit card bill that came in the next month. We also miss out on good stuff, don't we? You don't catch in a photo all the nonverbal communication. You don't see the smile of a satisfaction on a parent's face when their kid's on their first roller coaster. You don't pick up on the body language or people's tics and quirks. We miss out on how everybody laughed for hours afterwards. The fullness of joy they experienced. It doesn't capture the gratitude in the child's heart for their parents taking them on this vacation. It's not that the photo or the video is inaccurate. It's just incomplete. And that's what Paul is saying here. Friends, we do not have a distorted view of Jesus. The picture that the scripture paints is accurate. We have a great explanation of who God is in the gospels as we see Jesus in action. We know that Jesus was crucified for us in our place. We have Paul's letters in the New Testament, Peter's letters, John's letters that explain to us why Jesus had to die, why he rose from the dead, and the many implications of our lives. We have explanations of how we should live as followers of Jesus. 
And as good as all of it is, and it is good, it's not the full story. It's just a shadow of the reality, which is why Paul says, but then face to face. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and Jesus. His promise is seeing through a mirror dimly or darkly or our incomplete picture is not always going to be the case. We will see the entire story. One day we will see Jesus completely. And guess what? We will no longer need Matthew's eyewitness account. We will see Jesus with our own eyes. We won't need John's description of Jesus' grace and compassion. We will firsthand experience it. We won't need Paul's teaching on the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. We will fully and completely experience each and every implication. So then what does he mean with this idea of face-to-face? What exactly is he talking about? Well, let's zoom out for a moment. So I want you to catch something that is a bigger principle all the way through the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, we learn that the people who believe or trust in Jesus become deeply identified with Jesus. That's why if you read Ephesians or Colossians, the repeated phrase that you will see over and over it is this phrase, in him, in him, in him, in him. It's like this deep identification that happens in a marriage. When we say people get married, what, what's a phrase we use? The two become one. Kristen's and I, marriage. What's true of her bank account is also true of my bank account, right? What's true of where she lives is true of where I live. In fact, the scripture teaches us that when we trust Jesus, we become so deeply identified with Jesus that what is true of Jesus has become true of us. Or another way to say it is when God sees you, he sees Jesus in your place. And this deep identification of, with Jesus is the key to understanding what it even means to be a Christian. So as Christians, we have right standing before God. Why? Not because of my actions, but because of Jesus' actions for me in my place. Jesus has right standing before God, and so that right standing is gifted to me. What's true of Jesus becomes true of me. Christians, we are sons and daughters of God, not based on my birth certificate, but because Jesus is a son. And so we likewise are treated as sons and daughters. We've deeply identified with Jesus. So what's true of Jesus has become true of me. We're forgiven. Why? Because Jesus' sinless life is applied to me. Jesus is without sin, and what's true of Jesus has become true of me. And to our point today, we will be resurrected one day. Why? Because what's true of Jesus is true of us. And if Jesus was resurrected on Easter morning, then we are promised in the scripture, we likewise will be resurrected. Two chapters later, Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Since it's a historical fact. Earlier in the chapter, he says, you can go ask around. Hundreds of people saw him resurrected. Then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all died, so also, there's that phrase, in Christ shall all be, what? Made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order. He's saying there's a process here. There's a timeline here. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection accomplished much. It is a proof of his claims that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent by God to rescue people from their sins. Jesus' resurrection is a pronouncement of his victory over sin and death. It shows that God has authority over all things, even death itself. And more importantly, to our point today, Jesus' resurrection points forward to our own resurrection. Paul Paul calls Jesus' resurrection first fruits. This is a farming metaphor. That a crop at first starts to bear just a little bit of fruit. He's saying that shows that there's more fruit that is coming. A harvest is coming. But as Tim Keller says, this phrase means not merely that the resurrection of Jesus points to our future resurrection. It, he says, guarantees it. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is like for you today. It is a first fruit, a hint, step one, a guarantee that a harvest is coming, that resurrection will happen. Now, I'm not good at gardening. Uh, everything we try to grow at the Nichols house, except for Christmas, got some cactuses going. They look really great. It dies. Everything else dies. We had some raised beds for several years. We finally just tore them up, right? We're like, this is not our thing. So this farming gardening metaphor doesn't exactly land for me. So let's maybe try a different one. Jesus' resurrection is a down payment guaranteeing our resurrection. Jesus saying, I have victory over sin and death. Here's the proof. And that is a guarantee that for all who trust in Christ, we will rise again. This is what we celebrate at Easter. Because what's true of us has become, or true of Jesus has become true of us. We will be resurrected like Jesus. And our resurrected bodies will one day be face to face with a resurrected Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He doesn't say one day you'll have access to heavenly Google. Right? That you'll be able to search and search and search until your heart's content so that you can understand the mind of God and get all the knowledge that you've ever thought you needed. No, no, that's not the answer we need. The answer he says you need is love in the form of a person and you will come face to face with that love, the very love of God expressed in the person of Jesus. Or as he says that we will fully know Jesus as we have been fully known. Think about that. That the God of the universe who sees, knows, and understands all things, who understands every single one of us in this room perfectly, that we will know in the same way. That one day we will be resurrected to see Jesus and we will not be disappointed. This past week, Chris and I were going for a walk. We passed a Chrysler Pacifica, sweet minivan, And on the back, it had a vanity plate. It said, Jan's Van 2. Now, I don't know Jan, 
But I can imagine when she got her minivan, she was overjoyed at the fact that her first name and her car rhymed. (laughs) And I imagine Jan thought she was fairly clever when she put those things together. And I imagine she came to a point in time where she thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a vanity plate. Jan's van. And then the more sadistic side of me enjoys imagining the day that Jan, in all of her excitement, walked into the DMV only to be disappointed by Barbara behind the counter abruptly saying, I'm sorry, Jan's van's already taken. And the color drained from her face. And sheepishly, Jan says, did you try Jan's van one? Take it. And then like all of us who are late adopters to Gmail, Jane is scrambling for a number that would work. And the best thing she could do is Jan's van too. Listen, friends. When you get to this day, and you in your resurrection sees Jesus in his resurrected glory face to face, you will not be disappointed. There will not be anything lacking. There will not be a regret or a tear or a sorrow or guilt or shame. There will not be disappointment. Instead, you will be face to face with the Savior of the world who loved you to the point of sacrificing his life for you by his own death on the cross. And anything that you lacked on that day will be made whole. We will see face to face the one who has loved us, who has loved us patiently, endured with us through our struggles, our shortcomings, and our sins. We will see face to face the one who has loved us in kindness, whose disposition towards us has been gentle and good, who loved us without being full of envy, but the one who sacrificed himself for us in our place. The one who loved us without any sort of boasting, but who came as a servant. The one who is not arrogant, but who humbly has loved us, seeking to serve us. The one who is not insisting on his own way, but prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that God's will would be done. The one through his own death and resurrection became the way for us to know God. You will see face to face the one who is not irritated by your doubts or your questions. You'll see the one who is lowly in part and walks with us through our darkest moments. You will come face to face with Jesus. Jesus, the one who never tires of supporting you, who never loses faith, who never exhausts hope, who never gives up. Friends, that moment, unlike Jan's moment at the DMV, will not disappoint. And don't miss this. That moment, for those of us here who have trusted Jesus, is a certainty. Why? Because of your own ability to live a life that God desires for you to live on your own? No. It's a certainty. Why? Because you come to church every week. No. It's a certainty. Why? Because you pray or you read your Bible. No. It's a certainty because Easter, Jesus resurrected from the dead. The Bible says, as he resurrected, guess what? So are we. So I know there's so much that doesn't make sense to you right now. You and I see through a mirror dimly, we just get a reflection. You still have questions about why your mom got sick. 
You still have questions about why your parents divorced. You still have questions about why your business partner betrayed you. Many of us here have experienced a lot of disappointment. Our childhood church hurt us. Our dream job didn't pan out. Our marriage wasn't what we thought it was going to be. And for many of us here, our deepest questions have been left unanswered. Why is there pain and suffering in our world? Why does injustice endure? Why do these things in our society just continue to happen over and over and over again? And Paul says it is like we just see a reflection of the reality. The Bible doesn't say you're going to get all the answers. But what it does say with certainty is if you trusted Christ, you will meet the one who holds all the answers. So what does that mean for us here and now? Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What does Paul mean here? Does he mean that faith, hope, and love are going to be the things that remain until the next life? I don't think so. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do I need faith to believe when I can see Jesus face to face? Why do I need hope in a bright future when I've already arrived at that bright future? Instead, I think what he's doing is giving us three things that we should abide in now. That our lives should be marked by these three things. That in light of Jesus' resurrection, this should be who we are. That we would embrace this truth that Jesus' resurrection changes our present by securing our future. Or maybe we could say that a different way. Jesus' resurrection puts what is lasting and what is whole or complete in view for us. And when it does that, it changes the way that we live in the here and now. So it gives us these three things. So here's the first thing we do. We trust. When we see just a reflection, we continually trust in God. We know and understand we have an incomplete picture here and now, but the picture we have is compelling enough for us to continue to trust God with our futures. And so we trust God. We should be then marked by humility, knowing that we don't know everything, but also marked by confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ. So our lives should be lives of faith, trusting Christ and Christ alone with our future, and if we trust them with our future, we trust them also with our present. Secondly, we hope. We can have an expectant hope. Think about what we do know. Now, we do know that we have right standing before God. We do know that we have been adopted into God's very family, that we have a place as sons and daughters. We do know we have a future inheritance. We do know we've been forgiven and redeemed. We know all those things. Think about then, friends, what it will be like when we don't just know those things and have a little bit of experience with those things, but when we experience them fully. So we hope expectantly knowing that this world and this life is not all there is. There is much more to come. This also gives us a resilient hope that we can have confidence that even when our questions are left unanswered and when our circumstances don't go the way that we want them to go, we know this is just a reflection. One day we will see it all clearly. We will know Christ perfectly. 
And so that makes us resilient. And then finally, he says the other thing that abides is love. That if we've been loved the way that Jesus has loved us, then it only makes sense that we would love in that same way. I love that line. That we will be fully known as we have been fully known. Or that we will know fully. It's um, unbelievable. That in this moment, every single one of us is fully known by God. And in the next life, we will know him. So, believers today, Easter Sunday, allow this unbelievable truth to shape your present. What's true of Jesus is true of you. And if Jesus resurrected from the dead, no matter what you face currently, you will then if you came today, maybe not sure what you believe about Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, you never trusted Christ, I have bad news for you and good news. Here's the bad news. Is that right now in this moment, what's true of you is what's true of you. That you were created to know God loved by God, to have a relationship with God. But for all of us, our sin has separated us from God. And in this moment, if you've never trusted Christ, then that reality of separation from God because of your own sin is what is true of you. For all of us in this room, every single one of us, at least at one point in our lives before we came to knew Jesus, that was true of all of us. None of us are any different. That's the bad news. What's true of you in this moment is true of you. And that you will have to stand before God one day and give an account of what is true of you. But here's the good news. The amazing news for you today is what's true of Jesus could be true of you. What's true of Jesus could be true of you. You could be forgiven. You could be reconciled in a relationship with God. You could experience the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus in your life right now. What's true of Jesus could be true of you. You could be adopted into God's family. And you could be guaranteed with certainty that you will be resurrected into the next life. That could be true of you today. It just requires one response from you. The Bible calls it faith. Or as we talked about earlier, identifying yourself with Jesus. Coming to a point where you say, I want what's true of Jesus to be true of me. And I'm going to trust Christ. And then God, by his spirit, changes your heart. You're welcomed into the family, identified with Jesus. What's true of Jesus becomes true of you. That is quite possibly the best news you're going to hear today, the rest of the week, right? I mean, we're, we're hoping the Braves split with the Padres today, right? That would be so good. This is better than that. This is better than that. It's an invitation to make what's true of Jesus true of you. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.